0: Hey engine professionals, machinists and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how are we doing today? Doing well, Steve. Doing well. Good, good. Glad to hear everything's going good. Well, Chuck, let's jump right into it. We got a new little thing we're going to do here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the automotive history. And since this podcast is going off in July, we thought we'd do some research to find out what is happening or what happened uh, previously in our history in the month of July. Some interesting things to begin with is 1886 was the first gas-powered automobile was invented. Another thing that was found interesting was in 1935, the parking meter was introduced in Oklahoma City. So if you got a beef with a parking meter, you can blame those Okies. No doubt. 1935. That's been around a long time, longer than I had thought. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
0: right, right. Who would have thought that you had enough people parking that you wanted to? It doesn't take long, though. People are like, if I can make money off of that, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> and
1: who would have thought Oklahoma City? I would have thought like New York or Chicago or somebody like that would have been the first one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You would have thought they had more cows parked than cars. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> But, Chuck, the thing that interested me the most was in 1903, Ford took their first order for an automobile. And this actually happened on July 15, 1903. The newly formed Ford Motor Company takes its first order from a Chicago dentist named Ernest Fenning. And the first automobile was a two-cylinder Model A with a tonneau which was known as a back seat back then, and it sold for $850. This car was produced at Ford's plant in Detroit and was delivered to Dr. Fanning just over a week later. Henry Ford had built his first gasoline-powered vehicle, which he called the Quadricycle, in a workshop behind his home in 1896 while working as a chief engineer for the main plant of the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. After making two unsuccessful attempts to start a company to manufacture automobiles before 1903, Ford gathered a group of 12 stockholders, including himself, to sign the papers necessary to form the Ford Motor Company in mid-June of 1903. One of the new company's investors, Albert Strelau, owned a wooden factory building that he rented to Ford Motor. In an assembly room measuring 250 feet by 50 feet, the first Model A went into production that summer. Designed primarily by Ford's assistant, Harold Willis, the Model A could accommodate two people side by side on a bench. It had no top, and it was painted red. Red. Boy, Ford's blue. Why would you paint it red?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but remember all of the cars? He said you can have a car any color you want as long as it's black. So where does that fit?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The car's biggest selling point was its engine, which at two cylinders and eight horsepower was the most powerful to be found in a passenger car. It had relatively simple controls, including two forward gears that the driver operated with a foot pedal and could reach speeds of up to 30 miles an hour. Dr. Fanning's order turned out to be the first of many from around the country launching Ford on its way to profitability. Within two months, the company had sold 215 Fords, and by the end of its first year, the Ford plant located on Mack Avenue in Detroit had turned out some 1,000 cars. Wow,
0: that's pretty impressive. The description sounds like a go-kart of modern day, right? A couple pedals, Absolutely. you know. <laughs> um, it did have two forward speeds, and, uh, just a little trivial thing to throw in there, you know, $850 and, uh, was looking at a wheel to p- replace a bent one on my girlfriend's car and it's a, a Ford Edge and that wheel was like $560 today. Just one oh. wheel. <laughs> How the God, times have changed.
1: Exactly, Chuck. That's, uh, that's pretty, uh. I was just going to say, you know, you can't really do much on a car for 850 bucks nowadays.
0: Right. That's absolutely just mind-boggling to put that into the context. The whole car for 850 <laughs> one wheel, <laughs> $560. Uh, well, I guess we should talk about the the business of uh, being AERA members and what we do for the, uh, the membership. And uh, kind of jump over into online training. So, uh, if you're looking for some training in the engine building industry, AERA has you covered. AERA offers a comprehensive online training program leading to diploma quality certificates for cylinder head machinist and engine machinist technicians. Who successfully earn either certificate will hold proof that they have an elevated understanding of fundamentals of machining, measuring tools, shop safety fasteners, engine theory, engine diagnosis, engine disassembly, component cleaning, inspection, crack detection, and those can be two different things, (laughs) Uh, repair, component reconditioning, and cylinder head and block resurfacing.
1: The great thing about this program, Chuck, is it's an online self-paced course with up to one year to complete. The book, Automotive Machine and an Engine Repair by Gary Lewis, can be included with the registration fee and will be used as a syllabus when not online. Everything a technician will need is contained in the program with video clips and supplemental readings at key locations within the program.
0: So, to learn more about AERA Online Training Program, visit the website at www.aera.org slash online hyphen training again that's www.aera.org slash online hyphen training
1: yeah and it's uh we've got a lot of things we're doing with that program we're going to enhance it here coming up in the future so it'll be a great program for for anybody that's looking for training in their industry and i think it's um i think it's a good program that that you can learn the fundamentals from, like we had mentioned earlier, Chuck. Absolutely. Well, that brings us up to our guest today, who is uh, actually here in our building. So uh, we should probably just get started with here. And our topic today is what is tribology? And if anybody knows what that word means, you probably have a pretty good idea who our guest is today. So why don't we just jump into it, Chuck? Okay, listeners, we got a special guest with us today. I'm sure you've heard him before. If I hope you, they haven't. <laughs> I feel sorry for what they did. <laughs> if you've been to some of our regional conferences or attended them, uh, this individual has spoken a lot and given a lot of information to our attendees. Uh, Mr. Lakespeed Jr. Lake, how are you doing today?
2: I'm fantastic, Steve. Thanks for you and know, Chuck for having me in here. Beautiful day here.
1: Chicago area? Yes, it is. Uh, for once, we finally got some good days here. <laughs> no doubt. The wind's not blowing us away, and it's a clear blue sky. <laughs> oh, this is uh, Convention
2: or Visitor Bureau's weather for certain. You
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got Lake on today. We're going to talk a little bit about tribology. Mm-hmm. My favorite topic. Your favorite topic. Um, it's It's good to kind of let people know what that is, because I think a lot of people probably don't know what it is.
2: So. I guess so, right? It's kind of challenging to spell sometimes. It too, is very right? challenging. Uh, so, tribology is the study of friction, wear, and lubrication. So, you know, being an oil guy and a piston ring guy, that's right there at the combination, the crossroads uh, of tribology. That's because the, the piston ring is the highest source of friction in the engine. And it's not only a lubricated part, because it has to be protected so from wear, it's also a seal, so it's, it kind of sits right there. You know, oil, piston rings, cylinder wall finish. You know, I, I always call it ring seal soup because that's the best way to kind of understand that all three of those things come together to create ring seal. Because you have to use the oil to seal, It'd be the gasket between the ring and the cylinder wall, but that oil also has to lubricate the ring. And that cylinder wall finish has got to be able to retain enough oil to seal and to lubricate. So again, it's a fun topic. I can talk about it all day long. Most people's eyes roll back in their head. (laughs) You know, they're like, oh, what is this?" But you know, friction, wear, lubrication—that's that's that's my jam. That's what I. That's where I get excited and interested.
0: So. You, Saying that, bringing those things together, you know, it makes you think, well, oil would be better if it had a higher level of surface tension to create. But we look for oil to move and not have that surface, surface tension. Surface tension that's well,
2: then right high goes. surface tension also creates more air entrainment, more foaming. That's what anti-foam additives do is relieve surface tension.
0: Yeah, it's like when you spill a pint of oil. And it covers ten feet in your garage.
2: <laughs> oh yes. Uh, but this way, you know, it, it, you know, you, you always heard that you pretty much learned everything you need to learn in life from a fundamental standpoint by the time you're in kindergarten, and then you look back in life like, oh yeah, this is this is true. So the uh, the thing we all learned as kids was Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's a lesson in life there. And it's not about, you know, stealing porridge and things like that, right? It's that it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. The other thing you can learn from kindergarten is the balance beam. It's really easy to stand on either side of it, but it's harder work to balance. But the goal is to balance. And that pretty much is chemistry in a nutshell. What everyone wants to do is, so if, if more is good, Give it all she's got. Right. If less is better, take it all away. It's, it's this side right or that side of the balance beam. It's not hitting balance. Chemistry, tribology is about finding that balance, making those adjustments to reach that point of equilibrium. It's hard work to do that. It's not just here, throw all the weight on this side or all the weight on that side and just get it done. Finding that balance point, like I said, is hard work, but that's where the benefits really come in. And I I guess I've been spoiled because, you know, my dad being a NASCAR driver growing up in the NASCAR world and then being fortunate enough to work for Joe Gibbs Racing for over 10 years and being part of the Joe Gibbs Racing engine program and having a guy like Mark Cronquist be my mentor and being involved in that engine program, I saw firsthand... What can happen when you do that work and you find that right balance—that there is horsepower, there's durability—and that's one of the things that always kind of like this pet peeve of mine is that people act like, well, if I make more horsepower, well, then you, you suffer durability. Like I, I know Keith Duckworth is the guy, you know, famous engineer from Cosworth that designed the DFE. And listen, if you design the DFE then you can pretty much say what you want to say. You earned the right. <laughs> okay. But he was quoted as saying that an engine runs its best right before it blows up. Okay. From a tribologist standpoint, I'm gonna, I'm calling no way. Okay. From an engine tune-up perspective, maybe so. Maybe from a, it, I'm right on the edge and it's about to detonate. That's it. But the idea that this engine's gonna wear itself out and that as soon as it crosses the finish line, it explodes because we used every last little bit of life in that engine to go 500 miles, I'm calling BS on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because from a tribology perspective, if that part is so close to failing, that means I had higher levels of friction because I had higher levels of wear. Now, friction and wear are not two sides of the same coin. Just let that sink in for a second. Because most people think if I reduce friction, therefore I reduce wear. If I increase friction, therefore I increase wear. Uh, Think about your type F transmission fluid for a second because that's a higher friction fluid that doesn't increase wear.
0: Because you engaged? Yeah. And you're using that energy to do work rather than
2: slippage. I, I need it, yeah. I need that clutch to engage. I need friction for the clutch to lock up. So it's high friction fluid, but it's not creating wear throughout the transmission.
0: Yeah, great enough.
2: Great, great point. Yeah, it, it, it's just one of those things where people are like, what? It's like, oh, yeah, if I reduce friction, therefore I will reduce wear. No, it's not the case. You got to hold them as two independent phenomenon. But I will say this: when you have higher levels of wear, you typically encounter higher levels of friction, because as you have wear, you're going to be eroding the surface. You're going to create surface damage, irregularities that are going to begin to increase friction. So at some point, wear does have a friction component to it as a uh, side effect, right, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, so, I, yeah, I, get, I, I just struggle with the fact that oh, people say, oh, yeah, it's. I want to run this thing right at the ragged edge. And if this thing's back at a bunch of power, well, then it couldn't possibly last. I'm like, no, that tri- tribology <laughs> is here saying, no, you can have both. You can have your cake and eat it too, to some degree. Right? I'm not saying those parts are cheap. You know, it's that good, fast, and cheap, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That, There is truth in that one too, right? <laughs> the, you can only pick two that we can make engines, and we, we see it today. Uh, you know, at the last Engine Performance Expo, Doug Yates was speaking, was talking about how far they can run a short block today. And there was a point in time in NASCAR where you literally had your race engine, you put it in either the end of happy hour for the last practice and ran the whole race, or you put it in race day morning and ran the whole race. And then tore down and rebuilt it because it was down on power after one race. So it was losing power somewhere during that 500 miles. We now have short blocks that can run over 50, hundred race miles well, i guess we should just go ahead and uh we'll pass that short block down as a xfinity engine and run it again right we won't race it in the cup deal anymore right but we'll do a little bit of freshening up to it and it we'll hand it, hand it down it'll keep on running so you're talking about triple the life well part of it is you know, again piston ring guy uh now i look back and say well in the old days, we ran you know, Dr. Molly rings. I Maybe mean, they have been diamond finished and they were probably 043 and that was a hot setup back then. Well, now we've got steel knit rings that are titanium nitride and they're half that dimension. So 043 ring, now we're talking an 020 ring or an 024 ring. They can live three times longer. So it makes more power is more durable now that time I tried to steal rings more expensive right <laughs> <Napped laughs> that Dr. Molly 43 ring but there's a but there's okay performance and durability are not enemies yes <laughs> thank you Chuck they're not enemies and so that's kind of like my mission in life is to say hey listen there is all this information that was gained through NASCAR, I always used to say when I was at driven doing the oil thing, we do seminars. Listen, you know, Home Depot, FedEx, M&M's never asked how much money we spent on oil. All they asked is how many races, how many championships can we win? Yeah. That's all I cared about. Winning races, winning championships. It didn't matter what we spent on oil. And I said, now I'm here talking to you. And I'm going to tell you the things we learned from doing that. So I guess that's kind of been my thing all along is that I'm the guy that shows up from NASCARville and says, hey, here's some of the stuff we learned along the way. Is it what we do today? I didn't tell you, you know, what honing procedure and what the the radial dimension on that ring was and how you go about doing it. I didn't tell you everything, but I did tell you that you can run a much thinner ring than you ran before. And guess what? It's going to make more power, it's going to run cooler, it's going to live longer than your 16th, 16th, 316th ring that you think is a racing ring. Because that's what's always been, or even your 043, 043, 3mm, that's, that's not cutting edge. We can share with you what really is advanced technology, so that people in the industry can get better performance, get better durability, and not be just stuck saying, well, we've always done it this way, then we're just going to have to use the same parts and suffer the same results. Yeah, it's like we were talking about yesterday we were riding around, right, and the customer over in England that really (laughs) he wants better performance but he's reluctant to change the part. And the whole conversation is if the part's going to be the same it's going to Perform the same. If you want it to be better, the part's gonna Seven, have to be better. Different. Yep. Yeah, you want performance. You got to be willing to change. Right, Einstein's rule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: So you know. Anyway, it's, we could go on all day about that.
0: You know, you mentioned M and M's, and at the very simple level, mm-hmm. I use this a lot for folks. You know, like uh, you were talking about the. Titanium nitride and mm-hmm. piston in rings. But I said, you know, you think of things that in our day to day life that you can kind of learn from. If I were to take a Hershey's Kiss and I drop mm-hmm. it on the floor, it sticks. But I drop an M and M; it's got a candy coating, and it slides across the floor. And I think that kind of speaks into what you were saying about the rings. how about know, that analogy? Hardness, <laughs> you know, hardness um, is hugely impacted of mm-hmm. that. So if I want to resist. Scuffing or whatever, you know, files are a great example. Mm-hmm. I think uh, is a, a real quick test. Hey, you run across this material and it just digs into it, and this material slides across it, and then now you match the
2: right lubrication
0: to those things, and mm-hmm. you have an exponential leap in in that performance.
2: Right. Yeah, so, that, so it's a funny story. I was at my dad's shop the other day. You know, because dad still has the go kart shop, which was the old you know NASCAR engine shop, and it's been converted to go-kart central because Dad still likes to do you know, some vintage go-kart racing, some modern go-kart stuff, and one of the old Tutsca dino cells is now an Inertia dino cell for go-kart engines, and you we're know, over there playing with some stuff and need to drill a hole, he's like, okay, well, yeah, go over and get the, the, the gold drill bits. Those are the good ones, right? He just knows that these are drill bits that are gold. titanium nitride. Because that's what makes that coating color is it, it's a titanium nitride PVD, which is physical vapor deposition, right? Sorry to get technical there. Uh, but PVD is a type of coating, and this one happens to be titanium nitride. So anybody that's been in the shop has ever seen a gold-colored insert or you have a gold-colored drill bit, the reason why it works so good is the titanium nitride. Which is the same coating you put on the rings. Right. It makes it tougher, it makes it durable. Right? And we all know if those things like that, right? The gold drill bit is what I need to go cut that stainless steel. Right? The regular one is to sit here all day, it's never gonna get anywhere. But that one's gonna get the job done because that thing's tough, it can last. Right. So that that's kind of where we're at, is that it's it's fun to be able to bring the the science of chemistry. I I love chemistry. Anybody that really knows me, heard me talk, knows that I'm a petrol head from the word go. (laughs) So I love chemistry. Engines to me are big, giant chemical reactors. You know, it's like the erector set for for (laughs) (laughs) grown-ups. You know, it's awesome. So each time I can find these little nuggets of information and share it with people. And by the way, that analogy of the Hershey's Kisses and M&M's are stolen, by the way. I'll give you credit for it, but yeah. And coming soon to the top near you. Okay, yeah, what, what do coatings do? Here's the example. Because right? let you think about it, that's what would happen if you had a stainless steel piston ring without a coating on it, it's Hershey's Kiss. Does anyone that's ever machined stainless steel already knows that stuff is nasty to cut, right? It's sticky, it's gummy, it doesn't want to cut. It's hard, <laughs> harder than aluminum. So it, it, it's a mess. If I, if I coat it with something that's super hard, nah, it's not a mess. Right. That coating ain't coming off.
0: <laughs> now I've got the ductility, I've got the toughness. Mm-hmm. And then now I've got the hardware surface over the top of it. It's best of both worlds. It. It's like every knife maker tries to make that, right? I want a, a flexible spine, but I want a hard edge that stays mm-hmm. sharp for a long time.
2: Right. So. And I like Eminem's better purchase Kisses anyway. <laughs> not just because they were a sponsor; yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's the way it goes. One thing
1: um, I, I don't—I'll say, guys, probably don't think oils are all the same. Mm-hmm. It, it is a lubricant. Yes. Okay, but there are differences in oils. Not
2: oils are not all oils are the same. Oh, not even close. Correct. Correct. No, so that was obviously spent quite a bit in my life, and being a certified lubrication specialist, right, I'm the total oil nerd, that, that is the thing that has changed the most, I think, in my adult life, at least, is that y- you went from everything being pretty similar, right? You had Dexmerc right. transmission fluid, you could put it in anything, right? and, well, yeah, it was red, and it was lower in viscosity, and then you had engine oils that, you know, weren't red, uh, and... 30 weight in it or 1030 or 530 and if it's a race engine put 2050 in it and th- those things held fast for a while but the difference today is that you've got engines that have five timing chains in them you got variable valve timing you've got all these things that where the oil isn't just a lubricant anymore it's hydraulic fluid in modern engines Yeah, you know, that's we think about oil and we think about it being a lubricant. That's only one of its jobs. You know, Oil is not only a lubricant, it's also a coolant, it cleans, it seals, back to the very beginning, with piston rings as the, being the gasket, and it transfers power. So in every internal combustion engine, oil is doing all five of those jobs at the same time. And the other thing that comes across when it comes to lubrication is proper lubrication is the four R's. Right oil, right place, right time, right amount. The oil itself is only one of the four. So whenever there's a lubrication related issue, right, we think that it's a oil issue or a you know, issue related to wear or something that we think is lubrication. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, okay, well, do I have the right oil? And that basically the question is, is it the right viscosity? the right additive package right type of oil for the application you know this will throw people off so a 75w90 gear oil at 212 degrees fahrenheit is roughly the same viscosity as a 15w50 motor oil So all those guys who thought they were getting really tricky and putting lightweight gear oil in their transmission by putting motor oil in there, yeah, no, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I get it that when you pour it out of the bottle at room temperature, they look really different. One will pour easier than the other, right? The gear oil being thicker looking. But at operating temperature, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, they flow about the same. They're actually in the same SAE grade range. The reason why SAE defined gear oils as... 70 and 80 and 90 and 140 and all that is so people wouldn't confuse them with engine oils. That's why transmission fluid is red. It's dye. So people wouldn't put transmission fluid in their engine. That you can detect leakage here too. Uh, but, but that's mm-hmm. that's the whole thing, is that it, it's we tried to make things were done in the industry to try to make things easy for the consumer to not make mistakes. Um, but the point being is, okay, if I have the right viscosity for the application, the next question is the additive package, back to the gear oil and engine oil. Gear oils have great extreme uh, pressure properties. You know, you, you know, the little bearing tester guys, right? You put gear oil in a bearing tester and you can lay on it and it won't lock up put that same gear on your engine and see how far you can get. It won't lock up, but there's no detergent additive because that's the difference between a gear and an engine. You know, gears have as much sliding friction or more than a flat tappet cam engine, but they have no combustion blow by. There are no piston rings in a gear set. I've never seen piston rings in any gear set. And piston rings are there for one reason, to seal the combustion gases above the piston to keep them from getting into the crankcase and to keep the oil from getting into the combustion chamber. It's blow by, past the rings, the contamination that gets past the piston rings into the crankcase is what kills your engine oil. The same base oil in your motor oil is the same base oil that's in transmission fluid and gear oil and those hardly ever get changed. I mean, you've got cars today, transmission fluid, still for life. Yet you're changing your motor oil every 5,000, 10,000 miles somewhere, you know, based on those things. So what's the difference? Contamination. Where's the contamination from? Combustion. So engine oils have completely different chemistry to deal with combustion contamination versus transmission fluids your gear wheels, because completely different scenarios. Again, transmission fluids, for say an ATF, they're designed for all those clutches. Usually not a lot of clutches (laughs) in a rear. end. Now there are some limited slip Mm ones that have clutches, right? And they can be tricky. And oh my God, every once in a while, you'll get one of these abominations where you've got a transmission in the gearbox. That's really challenging because guess what? It's a compromise. You can't, as lubricant, make everything happy. If you make the clutches happy, you're probably going to s- sacrifice something in an extreme pressure additive uh, capacity. Get the extreme pressure property right and reduce friction in, the, in that sliding gear set. You're going to hurt the clutches.
0: Right, your motorcycle so, world, that
2: it's a, oh oh. I had this conversation the other day chat with somebody, and I said the, the hardest oil to formulate, and I have formulated a lot of oils that have one a lot of races and a lot of championships uh, around the world. Motorcycle engines, by far the hardest, because you really can't win. A, a win is a, a draw. I didn't hurt the clutch, I didn't hurt the engine. That's a win. I, I can't make the engine win, because if the engine wins in terms of horsepower, the clutch lost.
1: It's going to suffer.
2: Yeah. If I make the clutch just lights out perfect forever, it, I probably didn't get as much as I could out of the engine. Now you know, obviously, clutch performance will vary by rider. So that's one thing we even talked about when one of the hens I worked with was okay, maybe we should have different oils for different riders. Because <laughs> the guy that uses the clutch as traction control is gonna need something different than the guy that the clutch is just there to change gears. And so a lot of it comes back to the to the rider influence. But hopefully that people understand that when we're talking about oils, that all oils are not the same. Not the same. Not even close. And we just kind of gave some analogies of a gear set, an automatic transmission, and an engine. Well, today's reality is way more complex than that. Think about just on the engine side. You've got port injected engines, you've got direct ejected engines, and you know DI engines have really changed the way motor oils are formulated. Because there's more and more DI engines on the market, most people don't realize that sodium detergents have basically been eliminated from off-the-shelf motor oils. They were there before, they were in some brands, no one really knew that except oil nerds, which ones had and which ones didn't, they're all gone because sodium causes detonation in direct injection engines. With the new API SP oil spec, which came out you know last year, those are all gone. Because you can't pass the low speed pre-ignition test if you've got sodium in the oil. So they're just gone. I mean, that's an additive that had been in motor oil for 50 years, it's gone. The level of calcium detergent has changed and gone back to where it was in the late 90s. Which actually, for the flat tappet guys, actually a blessing, because oil today, in terms of flat tappet protection, is actually better off the shelf than it was 20 years ago, because that detergent level had gone so high to go longer drain intervals. Well, now with the API SP, with focused on low-speed pre-ignition, those detergent levels had to change, they had to come down, the mixture had to change. And that actually allowed, because the anaerobic part didn't change. So the ZDP and stuff hasn't changed. And of course they've been for years trying to come up with synergists to add with the ZDP. So they couldn't go higher in ZDP. So they put other things in the oil to try to make the little bit of ZDP they had left work better to contradict, <laughs> you know, work against the calcium being so high. Now the calcium being lower and the sodium being gone, all of a sudden. Just work better because that balance back to that teeter totter and Cody locks and the three bears, yeah. (laughs) Right? It's, It's all about balance, and so you got DI things changing. I mean, oh my gosh, on the transmission side, you got CVTs, you got dual clutch transmissions. So there's just manual transmissions with synchronized boxes or straight cut gears. There's so much variety there that. That right oil, right place, right time, right amount. Okay, the oil itself—you got to make sure it's the right additive package for the application. Got to make sure it's the right viscosity of the application. Then you got to look at the other pieces. Did I get it where I was supposed to be? When it was supposed to be? And enough of it? Because the best oil in the whole wide world sitting on the bench does your engine no good.
0: Right. <clears throat> so, and also, in what about temperature? You know, you look at a turbocharger. Mm-hmm you know, the oil leaves the engine, goes through the screaming hot turbocharger, and you know, that's every vehicle in the road just about now. Gas oh, and yeah. diesel.
2: Oh, exactly. That's again you know, one of the cool things that's come along in the industry in the last probably five years is newer antioxidants. Right. So anybody health nuts kind of know what antioxidants are and you know, oxidation is the chemical decay of everything. I mean We all oxidize, everything oxidizes, right? Rust, that's a form of oxidation. Um, So if oxidation is decay, so we think about that high temperature, what happens to the oil is it oxidizes. So under that high temperature of the turbocharger, it's causing oxidation of the base oil. Antioxidants are the chemical defense, the soldiers you put in there to keep oxidation from happening. That's one of the coolest things is that as we went to turbocharged engines across the OEM fleet, now advanced new uh, antioxidants have been coming into the market and it's amazing what they can do. That you can really run engines at temperatures that were unheard of before. And the just is, yeah, what else you got for me?
0: so additive packages being able to work at those higher temperatures um earlier you mentioned about the gear oil and how Mm -hmm. it acts at 212 degrees um my understanding is like certain additive components need to see certain temperatures to be activated yes so you know if you think about how many there's so much discussion about flat tappet cam failure Mm -hmm. So, so if you think about are we breaking engines in properly on some of the, if you're just spinning the engine, mm-hmm. should you heat your oil to make sure that your additive packages are doing their job? Because if that thing only sees 130 degrees, well, pour point changes at a buck 45 or something in, in a lot of oils, right? right? And then additive packages come alive at certain temperatures, um, you know, those are probably maybe some things that we don't consider. Um, well, yeah,
2: obviously there's a lot of issues as we record this right now. There's a lot of issues in the industry with, with flat tap video. It's definitely come back around, right? Mm-hmm. And here we were just a second ago saying, hey, oils are off the shelf or better than they used to be, All right? But so what's the rub? How, how, how could that possibly be? And one of the tricks is, you know, people typically, uh, as Keith Jones, you know, at Total Steel always says, no one's ever called him and said, you know, can you sell me a ring set that's going to take 30 horsepower on my motor? Yeah. <laughs> no one ever asked for that. Everyone always wants more. And no one wants us to turn less RPM. They want to turn more RPM. So, what I think has been going on is that we're always trying to get better, more aggressive on things. And when it comes to the break in, that is that critical moment. And an aftermarket additive, to your point about poor point and things like that, if I have a small-block Chevy sitting right in front of us with a flat tappet cam in it, and I could put, you know, whatever whiz-bang brand, whoever's favorite, you know, been doing it forever, break-in lube on the cam to install it, I can check my lifters rotating and all that kind of stuff. Which is Oh, those are all important things, right? In play, there's g- the g- there is no magic molecule that can fix bad geometry. Mm-hmm. I've said that over and over again for years. I'm like, let's just preface the talk about oil assuming geometry is right. Because if the geometry is wrong, nothing stands a chance. Right. Okay? So assuming the geometry is correct, the next thing is, if I have a five-quart oil pan and I put five quarts of just off-the-shelf, you know, 5W30 in there, and then I pour my bottle of break-in additive in the valve cover, and then fire that engine up, do you know how much ZDP is in the oil? 800 parts per million is what's in the oil pan, because that's how much is in the oil. I don't know how much you put in that additive, but it's all in the valve cover. Don't believe me? Take the, oil pan, take the drain pan off. Right, right, the drain pan off at least. Leave, with the drain pan on, take the drain plug get your stopwatch, when you pour that first quart of oil in there, hit the the start button and see how long it takes for oil to get to the bottom. And then realize it's not mixed. The ZDP has to be mixed into the oil. So what you're doing is you're mixing the oil, the additive in the engine, which an engine's a great mixer. Mm -hmm. Trick is the first two minutes of that engine's life are its most important. The beginnings of that cam living or failing will happen in the first 120 seconds of that engine's life. So the worst thing you can do is have that distributor 180 degrees out, cranking it, cranking it, cranking it, trying it. Or have the spark plugs in the wrong position, right? Or what, whatever it is, right? I said spark plugs, I meant wires, right? <laughs> can you edit that out later I'll on? Sounds me. like a dummy. <laughs> You know, but I mean, again, anybody that's been around engines and been in the dyno cell knows it is super easy to get the wires in the wrong place, nice. get the distributor out of phase. There's a, I'll say a million things, but there's a laundry list of things that you can easily do wrong that will make the engine not want to fire up. If it doesn't fire right up on the first go, don't keep holding it down thinking it's going to get better. Stop, because you need to start thinking about, I have 120 seconds to make or break this thing. So if I do have the right level of ZDP in the oil, it's already mixed already in. It's already up the temperature because ZDP does need heat for it to work. I've primed the system so that I know the oil's all through the engine. It's not just sitting in the oil pan. Right? Hit the button. in the time. The distributor's out, out of phase. Okay. Boom. Right? One, it's going to, use you to backfire through the carburetor and tell you that anyway. But find out what's wrong. Fix it. Because we've we've done it. I mean, million Billy Godbold, when he was at... When I was at Driven obviously I still at Comp, we would get all these flat type of camshafts, and we would measure with them with the ad coal. And we'd put them in the engine, we'd run them. We started off this process of, okay, we're gonna run 30-minute cam break-in, twenty hundred RPM. Then we started shrinking it back 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, 3, 2. And we measured the amount of wear on the cams, and we looked, took the profilometer and looked at and watched the surface break in. And by starting at thirty in this working back in time segments and slices, you could see how much of the change. Right there wasn't a big giant difference between one that ran thirty minutes and one that ran twenty minutes. I say there was no difference, but. Not much. I mean, we minimal. Well, this way, we did a deal where we had it, ran it for ten minutes, took it out, checked it, put it back in, ran it for ten minutes. Versus one that ran for twenty minutes straight, you could not tell a difference. In fact, if anything, the one that ran for ten minutes took it out, put it back in, had less wear. That the heat cycling really made a difference. In fact, Comp changed their break-in recommendation from thirty minute, uh, 25 to 30 minutes at 2,800 to 3,000 RPM to do two 10-minute cycles. All right, for 10 minutes at 25 to 2,800 RPM, shut it down, let the engine cool completely off, back to ambient temperature, then do it again for 10 minutes because that heat cycling makes a difference. Um, Obviously, idling is terrible. Um, you want to have, you know, for the rings, you don't want the engine not running that load. But, yeah, that's another super important thing. Just idling an engine with a, the fate, the fat safe tune-up will destroy rings easily because you've, you're washing the cylinder walls. Now there's not enough oil left over because you've oil's a solvent, essentially. Or fuel's a solvent compared to oil, so it'll wash it away. And so now you destroyed the lubrication properties of the oil in the cylinder wall, and now you've eaten up the ring face. And what, what happens typically is, yeah, if it's a molly ring, it's soft, it'll kill the ring. Then when the Molly's worn off, then it kills the cylinder wall. If it's a steel ring, steel ring don't care, it just hones the cylinder wall much faster. <laughs> <laughs> and then you yeah, have the surface finish left. So it, it's, it's a balancing act. Hopefully we didn't go too much of a rabbit hole there on the cam break-in thing, but Really, the key is you got to have zinc in the oil. You need to have it lubricated uh, with with mixed together properly. You need to pre-lube it so you get the oil where it's supposed to be. And then uh, pay attention. Heat cycling makes a difference. And then uh, that 120 minute or 122nd window, I think if people thought about that and really focused on that, we might lose some of the the failures we're, we're having in the marketplace because the way things are right now, I think we have a smaller window to get it right just the way parts are and everything in the industry right now we have a smaller window to get it right and so now we got to adjust recalibrate and say okay we got to shoot in this little narrow window do these things and will it fix everything no bad 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 geometry can't fix that you know uh the hardness is not anywhere near where it needs to be can't fix that either uh for the spring loads but i think if you Give it every chance it can, it probably has a better chance of surviving. So
0: control what's in your control. Yes, sir. Make it right. Yep. You know, that's one of the things Norris mentioned is the the geometry. When you're using the old core stuff, it's it's always been kind of poor geometry, but we probably had some other things that were beneficial to this, like the, the lifters that had the hard carbide puck that you can't get anymore. Right. But we had some other things. Yeah, those made too, things a lot easier. Yeah. So... No. But he said in his inspections, they were finding that you know a lot of lifters didn't rotate because, well, the lifter bore wasn't where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So you can't control that. Well, you can. You can machine the block, put bushings mm-hmm. in, and so, but control what you can control mm-hmm. and, and follow the rules is basically what it boils down to, right? Oh, well, exactly.
2: Uh, and, and this is somebody that, I mean, I've literally broken in hundreds of flat tappet cams. It may have been in the same engine, (laughs) you know, but the amount of cam testing we did for oil development, because that was ultimately what we used, is, okay, to me, the bearing test or any other kind of lab bench test is irrelevant for motor oil. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a motor, and, you know, because of our relationship with comp cams, when I was a driven, it was really clear, okay, we can measure where on a flat tap it can. We can measure where on a flat type of lifter. With a profilometer, we can literally measure the change in surface finish, the change in uh, geometry on those parts. We have data. So we can say we can put different things in the oil, run it for the same speed, same load cycles, and measure these parts and measure the change in those parts over time and determine what works better and what doesn't. That's simply how he did it. He wanted to use an operating engine in an environment, which means that if you have 16 different uh, additives that changed and try, that means you have a dead minimum 16, 17 different camshafts you have to run. So you gotta run a baseline for every, every batch as your control. And if I got 16 things to change, I need 17 cams. So that's 17 break-ins, 17 remeasures, 17 going back in the engine and running at the end, 17 coming back out, 17 flying back to Memphis and getting changed out. I bore that guy, those guys out. Chris Jones, those guys at the QC department, they, I think they hated me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, right? Because um, it was checking all 16 lobes over and over again. But yeah, that, those are the kind of things that we've done and why we like to share what we've learned. You know, look, even if a little thing like, hey, just do two 10 minute break ins. You know, maybe run in, run the engine at the end of the day to do the first 10-minute break-in. Let it sit overnight. Let it cool all the way off and run it again 10 minutes in the morning. You know, make sure that you mix, if you're dead set that you've got to run an additive in the oil, well, then put it in a five-gal clean 5-gallon five bucket and mix it in first. Warm it up. Prime the engine. Do all those little things. Um to give yourself a better chance of success. And the thing is, do all those things with any engine. If it's a two-cycle engine, do it. (laughs) If it's a roller cam engine, still do it. Do all those, it's crazy, at Gibbs we found that if we treated the roller cam engines the exact same way for break-in that we did A flat-tappet engine, they live longer, and the parts wear less. Didn't need to do all this step, this, that, other thing, monkey motion on a roller cam engine, but we did it, and the parts lived longer. And we found out that when we stopped trying to do it, then the parts didn't look as good. They didn't live as long, and it's like. Okay, there's, there's something to that. Don't ask it why. Just do it what it tells you to do. <laughs> I a good buddy of mine, Jake Raby. said, the engine is your teacher. You just need to listen to it. It doesn't speak English. It can't hear you. We can fuss at it all we want and tell what we want it to do. It doesn't speak English. But if we listen to it, it will tell us what we want. You know, which is why I I love oil analysis, things like that, because it's a way of having the engine tell you if it's happy. My kids, you know, say I've selected hearing, that I'm half deaf, which is true, because growing up around, you know, racing engines and two-cycle stuff my whole life, I am half deaf. But it's funny, you know, spending years in the engine shops, especially on dinos, your ears do get attuned and if it's something doesn't sound right, probably not right.
1: That's a good, just a good analogy there. You know, like the engine is your teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was great. It's like, like you said, listen to what it says. It's telling you, I'm, I'm it's not always, feeling good.
2: I'm not, you know, whatever. It's you know? always talking to you. Yeah, always. Yeah. Is the valves drive adjustment or camshaft? Lobe's not right. You can hear the clatter. If it's missing and detonating, I was at Shaver's, right? Right. I mean, it's just typical Ron Shaver. We're back there. We're running an engine on a dyno, and we're doing one of these durability tests where it's really running the thing hard, you know, 300 degrees oil temperature, loading the thing up, and, you know, Ron's just walking through the shop, and he comes over and says, hmm, thing's detonating, and just keeps on going. You do that? Yeah, it's not detonating. Dino guy's been there a while. me go in there and listen. He goes there and gets his test cups. Yeah, you get back some time out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he just walked through the shop. Years <laughs> and, like, and years of experience. Right. He was like, how do you hear that? And then the funny enough, later on, like, okay, yeah, I, I know that engine. We call it Oscar. Like, when Oscar is knocking, I can hear it. Now, it took me years of learning it, you know. But that is the thing. Is it, it, like I said, the engine is your teacher. You just need to listen to what it's trying to tell you. I mean, two to- more times than not, you know, Ben Strader, good buddy of mine, has a saying, belief dictates vision. And yeah, I've heard him say it so many times, and it's like, okay, okay, okay. I mean, I I hear you. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other day, though, it really kind of cl- hit, clicked, me, clicked. That if I believe the outcome, if I believe that engine is not detonating, I'm not going to hear it. I, I, I'll attribute any other sound. Oh, it's the machine running in the background. It's this or that. It's. I, if I believe I already know the answer, what's going to happen is I'm going to look for things that confirm what I think. I'm not, I, I'm just looking for confirmation. I'm not looking for answers. Right. And that's what we do. It's, it's like, I just, I was weeding my yard. I dropped the weed eater your And I'm like, wow. Okay. There's big truth in that state. Belief dictates vision. And the whole thing of that is, it means we need to not try to jump to the conclusion. Where there's a problem, where there's something going on, what we need to start doing is we need to start listening before we start thinking. That's the hardest thing in life right there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it, it really is. It, it it's the hardest thing. It's I think we we got really lucky when we were doing the oil development stuff that we fell into a pattern of testing that people would come by when we were out there at Shavers running the dyno and I mean you're there running hour long hours and hours long durability tests and you're there for a solid week. So You know, you got people coming in and out of that shop all the time. And they would always come back to the dyno. Well, what you doing? How much power is she making? What are you learning? You know, or the biggest one to me was, well, what are you trying to figure out? Mm -hmm. I'm like, we're just here to run a test. We're going to run these parts that are already pre-measured. We're going to run them in this environment following this procedure Later on, we'll figure out what we learn from it. But I am in the moment not trying to learn anything. There's not an objective. There's no goal for this test other than to execute the plan of the test with as little variation as possible. Our whole goal became run the test with precision accuracy so that the same person was setting the preload on the lifters every time. That way there wasn't a bias of, well, this guy's a turn, that guy's a turn in a quarter, that guy's a turn in a half. Right. Uh, All those little things, we tried to minimize that influence over time so that we could run the same test with the same everything over and over again and get the same result.
0: Yeah, minimize the variables. That way, when you get to a point where you do want to turn something on or off, then you know that's the switch. I want to turn that on. I want to turn that off. Do my results yield the same? Mm-hmm. You know, and or do my tests yield the same result? But yeah, totally. I mean, I think that scientific approach to every component. You know, starting out with the tribology. You know, I I know these things from tons and tons of testing. Mm-hmm and documentation of the testing and Mm -hmm. looking for what I can turn on and turn
2: off. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it takes a guy like Ben that's background is aviation to come up with that kind of perspective because I know from my own uh, son who's uh, in pilot training, one of the first things they, they teach him is they put him under the hood. You're in the airplane. And you're up there above the clouds. They put you under the hood and all you can see is instruments. Back to the the belief dictates vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I'm just VFR flying with my eyes, I'm believing what I see. But there's bias in what I think. There's no bias in the gauge. If the gauges are calibrated, right? In, mm-hmm. If the gauges are calibrated and everything's working right, the gauge has no feeling, no emotion. It, it just tells you the facts. And you have to learn how to take that emotion out and focus on that. And I, I, there is, there's some... Good lessons to be learned in life that we can take and apply to what we're what we're doing with these engines, especially. Like you said they're they're only getting more complex. Correct. And I'm a believer. There is a future for the internal combustion. I don't think she's dead. I think there's still life in the industry long term, but to actualize that life is going to require change, require advanced technology. You look at what a Formula One engine is doing today. In terms of thermal efficiency, I mean, what would happen to global uh, CO two output, global fuel consumption, if every engine on the planet became twenty percent more thermal efficient?
0: That's that's a huge difference. Absolutely, when they're what thirty now, thirty five. Right, it,
2: it, that's a massive change that would have profound effects on everything. That technology is right there. Now, applying that technology to the engine is gonna require different things. And so now it becomes a more complex environment where you have to have less feeling and emotion to get rid of that baggage from the past and focus on the data. And I think that's the, yeah, back to, back to Ben, right? It's the, that belief dictates vision. I'm sure that was learned under the hood, <laughs> you know, teaching people how to fly airplanes and then he's just taking that mentality as applying it to engines and obviously he's having some good success doing that and you know it's it's what it is we're fortunate i, I we talked about it earlier today the people in this industry are I think are the greatest I, I think the the best of America that we have as a country is within this industry the the work ethic the ingenuity, the ingenuity. It, it, it is true americana which is why there's a lot of american flags <laughs> in yeah. a lot of our shops and you know a lot of our companies all colors are red white and blue <laughs> you know it's, it's, there's just no that's not not mistakes right that, that this is who we are as as an industry and as people and that, that's what makes it great though i love our industry because of that and so uh, yeah I, I believe in us as an industry
0: yeah that's great way to put it, because, you know, think of it, Steve, Drag Race, how many, I mean, we're so competitive as an mm-hmm. industry. We want to beat that guy, but we want to help that guy, too, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, we're racers, we, we want to win, we want to own something, you know, like, you mm-hmm. know, proud of our country, and uh, that's that's a great way to put it. it it's so true.
2: Well, that, that camaraderie, like you said, of the racer, The best days in NASCAR, in my opinion, were when the garage area was such that everybody helped everybody else. If you didn't have an upper control arm for your car, the guy you were next to in the garage that you're racing against for points in that win would give you one off the shelf if they had to spare. because no one wanted a hollow victory. Right. I could be the only go-kart on the track and go win the race, mm-hmm. because everybody else is blown up and all that. That's hollow victory. I, I, I want to win against the best guys out there. That's what I want to win. Yeah, and if I'm not faster than you, then maybe I might better figure out a strategy and, and Find some way to beat you if I don't have the pace that you have, but I I want to race against the best. I want to prove myself against the guys who are best in class. Not just have a hollow victory. That's anybody can play down or find something. Now, who wants to do that? That's not fun. No, not at all. No, you want to beat the best, right? And, and that, to be the best, you got to beat the best, right? That's. <laughs> That's why most football players don't celebrate a preseason win. Right. (laughs) But you watch them in a Super Bowl or national championship game, watch them. Yes. That's where the celebration becomes because it's at the pinnacle. It's like we were talking the other day. um, Larry Wallace gave me a great quote when I first started meeting with him, talking about oil and stuff. It was that, You go to Mount Everest, there aren't any dead bodies at the bottom of the mountain, they're all at the top. Because the higher you climb the mountain, further is the fall, your margin of error gets a lot smaller too. But view gets better too, right? Top of the mountain is where that perspective changes and the view is better up there but it's hard work to get up there it's same we're talking about the same thing right yep. it's it why do we do what we do why do we come in and put the hours we put in the shop and work weekends and nights and do all that why because you want to have that mountaintop experience you know there's nothing feels better than seeing something that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into win. I I can tell you races that I watched Tony Stewart win, that either I was there to the very last second lap, or watched it on TV, maybe it was rain-delayed past midnight, watched every single lap because I knew that there was a chemical that I designed in that engine. And watching them win races, there's no better feeling than that. There really isn't. And so I think of everybody in this industry, whether you're making parts or building engines, that's what you live for. That's what makes me get up every day. Right, right. If that was everyone's objective,
1: where would we be? It would be awesome. Oh, it would be. It would be. <laughs> it would be. Well, Lake, thanks for coming on our podcast. We could keep continuing talking for hours and well, hours. You're gonna have to edit a bunch <laughs> of stuff <laughs> anyway. no. we'll we'll figure something out and we'll definitely have you back on again because I think there's, there's a lot of questions that came to mind that we didn't get answered, but we'll definitely have you on again to do this again. Well sounds
2: good. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.
1: Chuck Kevin Lake on was great th- today uh, to discuss tribology and enlighten us on oils. I think he he did a great job.
0: Absolutely, you know it's uh, probably really underappreciated um, the interrelationship of the different metals within the engine, and they have to be happy with one another. And then what impact lubrications has on that? Uh, Lake always does a great job. He brings it to a level that we can appreciate and understand it better. Uh, he knows it from the scientific side of it, the engineering side of it, and he brings it to the, the average gearhead that needs to know this stuff um, to help them better build engines. So, yeah, really, really great to have him a part of our association and, and
1: industry. It really worked out great because Lake was actually in our office uh, this week interviewing Chuck and I for the Engine Performance Expo, uh, which will be the second Engine Performance Expo being held October 12th through the 14th, 2021 in Piney Flats, Tennessee. And one note I saw the other day, Chuck, was this is actually going to be virtual or in-person where I think they're allowing 200 people per day uh, to actually attend this event. And if you'd like more information about the Performance Expo, please visit engineperformanceexpo.com. You can register for the event there as well as find out all the information you need uh, for that event.
0: You know, Steve, and actually one of the contributing uh, technical guys is going to be doing our upcoming uh, podcast. Randy Neal from CWT Industries uh, will be on with Steve and I to discuss discuss engine balancing, all things balancing, I'm sure everybody knows that Randy uh, not only helps contribute in the balancing technical world, uh, he manufactures the equipment and he has everything from turbochargers to giant diesel natural gas compression engines and so forth. So um, yeah, he he lives it; he's deep in it.
1: Yeah, and Randy was a big help in uh, working with us to finish our balancing manual. Uh, He did a great job of helping and supplying us with some good information for that. So definitely looking forward to having Randy on to try to enlighten our listeners on engine balancing. So Chuck, if the people are listening to our podcast and they want to subscribe, how would they do so?
0: Well, if you are listening to this podcast um, but haven't subscribed, um, we're pretty sure you can probably find your way around on the internet and you can get out there and you can go to Engine Professional Podcast on one of your favorite podcast listening platforms. Or you can listen online at podcast.engineprofessional.com. Again, that's podcast.engineprofessional.com.
1: And if you have any questions or comments about our podcast, feel free to email Chuck or myself at eppodcast at aera.org. That is E-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at aera.org. Well, Chuck, that brings us to the end of another episode of the podcast. Um, Like we said earlier, uh, Lake did a great job. It was great to have him on to talk about tribology and all the metals and oils and and things like that. And I I think that could have went on a lot longer than it did. And we're definitely going to have to have him back on in the future.
0: Absolutely. And again, I don't think we can say this is enough. Uh, we really appreciate <clears throat> people giving of their time to come on and, and uh, you know, sit down and, and talk with us and, and share. Uh, this is for the industry. This is for the membership. And uh, again, please, please uh, send Steve and I some comments, questions, uh, recommendations on what you may want to want to hear discussed. And uh, of, of course, we're always looking to improve ourselves and, uh, and share what
1: we know. To, as we always say, uh, till next time. Till next time.